Hello, everybody. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party candidate and the Socialist Party candidate for president in 2020. And this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about continuing to educate and organize around the eco-socialist program that Angela Walker and I ran on in 2020. So I am now recovering from our petition drive here in New York State. We submitted our petition uh, on Tuesday, and uh, there's three days for objections to be filed. And as far as we know, no objections have been filed. Now, uh, somebody could have mailed objections to our petition Friday, and we won't find out till early next week. But I'm cautious, cautiously optimistic that we're going to be on the ballot, which is, uh, I think, really important for the politics of New York State and really the country. I mean, a lot of people are saying, you know, the Democrats need more people in Congress and the Senate and the House so they can pass their legislation. But here in New York, the Democrats have supermajorities in both the uh, Senate and the Assembly, and they're not passing the progressive priorities. I'm working on a little statement for the media I'm going to send around to my campaign manager and supporters uh, to send out, but yes, this morning actually, the, the New York State uh, Assembly uh, finished business for the year. The Senate left town on Friday or maybe even Thursday night. And there's a long list of progressive legislation that are is very popular across the state. It has to do with the New York Health Act, which is a state level Medicare for all program. I mean, this is the perfect example. That bill. Uh, was first passed in an earlier version by the New York State Assembly in 1992. Feels like 1892. And it's passed many times since until the Democrats also got control of the state Senate. And they, you know, promised we get control of the state Senate, we'll get this uh, universal public health insurance program passed. Well, since they did, they got control of the Senate, that bill has not got out of committee in either chamber. The insurance industry poured money into the Democratic Party's coffers, and they don't seem to be able to move on it, or they won't move on it. And it's a similar story. We've talked about it. It's Hawaii, California, and Vermont, where the Democrats got control of both chambers of their state legislature and the governorship. And suddenly, while they said they were for a single-payer public health insurance program, they couldn't get it passed. We got the same problem here in New York, and this year, again, the New York Health Act did not move. And then in 2019, the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act passed, which sets up modest goals. They're high by state standards around the country, but modest goals for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and moving toward clean energy. Uh, the Greens had supported a stronger bill, and this bill is actually compromised before between former Governor Andrew Cuomo and uh, a coalition called New York Renews, which is around the uh, nonprofit uh, organizations and Working Families Party. So it's weaker than we would like, but since that bill passed in 2019, there's been no climate legislation passed. And to implement this bill, its goals, it needs funding and it needs pieces, you know, that set up uh, more specific standards. So there were a dozen bills, the Climate Action Coalition, what was it called? The Climate, climate Can't Wait Coalition. Um, had a dozen bills they were trying to get passed. And only one of them passed in a watered-down form. It's a bill that puts a two-year moratorium on fossil fuel 
cryptocurrency mining, which is a big issue here in New York. And uh, original bill was for three years moratorium. They watered it down to two. And whether the governor, a Democrat, Kathy Hochul, is going to sign it is far from certain. She says, on the one hand, they're jobs. On the other hand, we got to protect the environment. I think she's going to go with jobs, even though the jobs in cryptocurrency mining is, is, is small. A lot more jobs than renewables. I mean, the Green Party is opposed to cryptocurrency. Even if it's produced, the mining is even uh, uh, powered by renewable energy because that's a diversion of that renewable energy we need now for buildings and transportation and manufacturing. So that did pass. But then there are 11 other bills from, you know, the, the top one for us as equal socialists is called the Build Public Renewables Act, which would have enabled the New York Power Authority, which is a large, uh, owns a lot of hydropower plants, to build and own affordable uh, renewable energy and also to uh, spend money retrofitting public buildings with energy efficiency and electric heat pumps. Uh, that that was the big push, and, and it didn't pass. It passed in the Senate, but not the Assembly. All Electric Buildings Act would have ended fossil fuel heating and cooling systems in new residential and commercial buildings uh, of up to six floors by 2024 and all buildings by 2027. Didn't pass. Uh, there was a couple bills to fund uh, the clean energy transition, one for $15 billion one for taxing the rich for 10 billion. And, you know, probably the most important, although we have a stronger carbon tax, it's called the Climate and Community Investment Act. It's really the one, the coalition that got the, uh, what we call the CLCPA, Community Leadership and Community Protection Act. Um, you know, that would provide about 15 billion a year. Um, it's kind of a flat carbon tax over time. We want to you know, one that escalates over time to create greater incentives and more revenues. But uh, yeah, it didn't get anywhere. Uh, a bill to ban new fossil fuel electric power generation didn't pass. We have over $330 million in New York State subsidies for the fossil fuel industry. Bill to eliminate those didn't pass. Uh, the state capitol and Empire State Plaza, which is a big uh, complex of buildings, uh, that's now powered by fossil fueled sources. There's a bill to make sure it was powered by renewable energy, didn't pass. Uh, there's a bill to divest the teacher's pension fund from fossil fuel companies. Um, and the state, the city teacher's fund is, is divested. It's, it's all, almost as big, New York City fund, but the state teacher's fund, that bill didn't pass. Uh, bill for you know, some environmental justice measures, uh, environmental impact statements would address the effects of on disadvantaged communities. And, uh, and there was another one to provide uh, the Public Service Commissioning programs they fund with job training funds and hiring goals for disadvantaged communities didn't pass. So climate action just didn't pass in New York, even though the Democrats have super majorities in both chambers and the governor. And then when you get to criminal justice reform, there was a lot of talk after those, what were called the largest demonstrations in U.S. history after the police murder of George Floyd. So we had a, a bill to uh, wipe uh, somebody's slate clean once they'd served their sentence and any parole didn't pass. Uh, a fair and timely parole act, which would have required the state parole board to evaluate inmates for parole based on current merit and behavior didn't pass. 
Elder Parole Act, which would have required State Parole Board to consider all inmates over 55 years old who had served 15 or more years to be considered for parole. Didn't pass. And Qualified Immunity Act. Uh, you know, that's a U.S. Supreme Court invented doctrine that shields government officials, and in this case, notably police and correctional officers, from lawsuits when they violate or allegedly violate civil rights. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, formally exercising the right or, or, you know, bodily harm and injury. And uh, that didn't pass. And then one thing that did pass was they increased the amount of uh, state public employee pension funds that can be invested in these so-called high-risk alternative investments on Wall Street, hedge funds, private equity, real estate. And uh, that means more, as much as $54 a billion dollars more in retirees' savings in those public pensions can go to high-risk Wall Street investments. And there was a lot of money poured in by Wall Street to get that passed. And then there's an equality amendment to the state constitution. A lot of talk about that after this Alito memo or a decision leaked uh, to protect abortion rights and uh, you know the rights of all LGBTQ people and women. Uh, and it, everybody thought it was going to pass, but apparently the senator uh, sponsoring it uh, was not on the job and they just ran out of time. So <clears throat> that's all to say, you know, it's one thing to replace Republicans with Democrats. And if you do that, it's another thing to get these progressive legislations passed. And I think New York is a case study of that this year. So that's where we are today. We're hoping we're on the ballot. We're going to, you know, I just outlined the headline I got for that release is 20 reasons to vote green in 2022, you know, from the New York Health Act to all these climate bills to the criminal justice reforms to the um, protection of pension funds and equality. So um, we're going to be fighting for those things, whether or not we're on the ballot, but uh, hopefully from the ballot and from the podium at debates and all that. So that's what's going on here in New York. And I know there's a lot of stuff going on nationally. I've been, you know, rooted here in that petition drive in New York. So that's what I uh, focused on today. So I'm looking forward to your questions and your comments. Scout Trooper 164, what do you think of the U.S. Marines being forced to give support for the LGBT community? Um, well, they should. And uh, they're actually kind of bragging about it in some advertising I saw. Um, you know, it was the Marines were probably the most reluctant to desegregate back when Truman made them do it in the 40s. But I'll tell you, by the time I was in boot camp in the early 1970s, um, they didn't tolerate any racial nonsense. I was in a training or company. That include people from South Boston, if you know what was going on there, and East Boston, the fight over desegregation in Boston, and those two communities were hostile to it. So you had attitudes coming from those guys. And then uh, another big contingent in our uh, training company were black guys from East St. Louis, one of the most segregated and poor cities in the country. And some of those South Boston and, and East Boston uh, guys, you know, had some racial problems. They got booted out right away. You know, the, the drill instructors wouldn't tolerate it because 
You know, when you're when you're in a fighting unit together, you got to have unit cohesion. If you're divided by race, that's a danger to everybody. So just for that practical purpose, the Marines weren't tolerating it. That was one of the good things I saw in boot camp. Um, and, you know, it's the same for LGBTQ people. You know, if they're part of a, a you know, a Marine Corps unit, um, you want what they call unit cohesion. Everybody working together, supporting each other in solidarity with each other. Otherwise, you're going to be at risk. So, you know, I don't think the Marines are being forced. I think uh, they understand that that's uh, better for the Marines if they're if they're out there fighting. So, um, you know, maybe a mandate came from higher up in the Department of Defense. I don't know. But uh, I think once they adopt that position, they're going to stick with it because it's it's kind of a military necessity. Eric Gray, in your opinion, Howie, how should one argue plan to implement a plan for defunding the police in a state like Florida, where my city of Fort Myers just increased their budget from 50 million to 52, over 52 million? Um, I think you should look at what they did in Richmond, California. Um, there's an article you can find on Jacobin, one of the last articles by the late Mike Parker. I think he co-authored it with another person from Richmond. And they got money transferred from the police budget to social services that were good, uh, that would help with crime prevention. And they didn't call it defunding the police. They just talked about uh, more important priorities and crime prevention. So they stayed away from that slogan, which is, you know, kind of a, a lightning rod and, and it kind of stops the discussion. And, uh, you know, just focused on the concrete programs that could be funded by transferring some funds from the police department to these other services. Um, and I, so what I'm saying is, I think, look at what they did in Richmond. And I think that'll give you a good example of how to argue and plan uh, for transferring resources or divesting some from the police department and investing some in the community. Scout Trooper 164. Howie, what do you think of politicians blaming video games and movies for shootings instead of advocating for gun regulation? Well, I think they're, you know, afraid of the NRA, which is an organization falling apart in, in terms of its own scandals, but uh, still has a lot of money to throw at elections and uh, a base that they can mobilize. So these politicians are afraid of the NRA. And, you know, video games and movies is probably something to be said for, uh, in fact, I was hearing a story today about how uh, gun manufacturers use video games and product placement in them. Uh, something about how you get your man card back if you get this gun uh, in some of that advertising or those video games. Um, you know, that could influence some small-minded people like this kid down there in uh, southern New York that ran over to Buffalo to massacre black people at that grocery store. Um, so, you know, that's something we need to look at. We need to look at the whole culture. I mean, the whole, you know, machismo thing about, you know, you're not a man if you don't have a gun. Um, and then some people, once they got a gun, they use it. So there's, there's, it's not either or, it's I think both and. We got to have reasonable gun regulation. You know, universal background checks, 
I mean, everybody's for that, even most NRA members. But the damn uh, U.S. Senate, the Republicans, you know, are afraid to move on it. Um, even though we have evidence from the Brady Bill that when they did uh, ban the sale of assault weapons uh, for a period of time from the, I guess it was the early 90s to the early 2000s, uh, mass shootings went down. And after the, the ban was lifted, they didn't renew it. They went back up. So, uh, you know, there are obvious things that need to be done. And um, so what I think of those politicians, I think they're gutless. Violet at Content Boutique. I'm afraid that if we don't get a handle on our gun abuse problem, public transportation and other public gathering activities won't succeed. I'm personally scared of public transportation, movies, etc. Um, yeah, I think that's an issue. It's, I think, an issue particularly in the New York City um, subway system where actually crime is still far lower than it was in the 1970s and 80s and early 90s, and it's, it's come way down. It's gone back up uh, since the pandemic, and that's a reason for concern. But, you know, objectively, if you look at the statistics of, you know, where you're safe and not, you really shouldn't be too worried about getting on public transportation or going to the movies or to public gatherings. On the other hand, it's understandable with these high-profile cases and, you know, the high level of gun violence and mass shootings that we have in our country compared to every other country, uh, at least in the industrial world. So, um, you know, basically every country that's not having some kind of civil war. And even then we have higher rates than a lot of those countries. So um, it's an issue to be concerned about. Um, that, you know, the, the gun issue has got to be addressed. And, you know, right now with the, the Republicans basically vetoing anything, nothing's going to get done. Um, we can do things at the uh, state level. Uh, New York State actually did do more. It already had strong gun safety legislation, and it passed some more uh, bills in, in this session that just concluded. Um, and I think while Congress is in gridlock, that's what we got to do. And, of course, some of you are in so-called red states, which makes me laugh. I was out petitioning, and, you know, I talk about the Green Party, and the guy says, where's the red party? And I thought he was talking about socialists. And he really was talking about Republican. How did the Republicans get the socialist color? Well, they did it because some map on TV had blue for Democrat and red for Republican when they were doing the Electoral College, and that stuck, which is kind of funny, kind of absurd. Um, but in any case, in those Republican states, um, you got the same problem that we got in, in the U.S. Senate. Uh, the Republicans aren't going to do anything about gun safety uh, without, you know, a huge mass movement, you know, making it impossible for them not to. And right now we don't have that. Um, there's, you know, a lot of effort, but um, the ability of the NRA and, and those types of organizations to mobilize gun owners, basically with scare tactics. I mean, they tell those people that the Democrats are going to take their guns, which the Democrats have no intention of doing. You know, to require a background check, I mean, it's it may prevent somebody who shouldn't get a gun from getting one, but that's about it. Nobody's coming for their guns. 
It's uh, we just need gun safety regulations that are stronger than we have now. And we have good evidence from around the world. You know, Australia, for example, banned assault weapons after a mass shooting in the 90s. And, you know, their uh, mass shooting and overall uh, murder and, you know, uh, gun violence rates went way down. So, you know, we know it works and we should keep pushing for it. Um, but I would say, um, you know, unless you have particular reason at a particular public gathering, don't don't let the slight rise in crime we've had since the pandemic, uh, you know, make you afraid to go out. Scout Trooper 164, what do you think of Biden ignoring the working class recession going on? Um, is he ignoring it? I mean, I think he's trying to explain it away. Um, he's, he's not happy about it. Um, maybe by ignoring, you mean he's not uh, pushing any legislation or policy or executive actions that would provide relief to the working class, like across the board student debt relief for starters, uh, raising the minimum wage. Um, you know, there's a lot he could be doing. And, uh, you know, right now we got an inflation. It's not wages pushing the inflation, even though wages have increase nominally in real terms, inflation adjusted terms, they're going down. Um, so, you know, there's a lot he could do. And, uh, you know, those are, you know, the top two that come to mind for me, you know, raise the minimum wage and student debt relief. Those are things that would help working class people a lot immediately. Eric Gray, I'm just thankful that the school year is over. Meanwhile, there are people that have suggested that teachers be armed, just like the situation in New Mexico. Thoughts on arming teachers? Uh, I don't think it's a good idea. Teachers are not, they're trained to teach, not provide security. And even when you have trained security people, uh, you know, they often are not able to, you know, stop a shooter. Um, so, you know, or they're afraid to, or they won't, like the police there in Uvalde. So, um, you know, that's just a bad idea. I mean, the more guns you got in the school, the more likely somebody's going to use them. Uh, what we really got to do is prevent these shooters from coming in in the first place, which, you know, background checks. I mean, this guy down there in uh, Texas and the guy here in New York, it went to Buffalo. You know, both there were good... Uh, indications that they were uh, problematic and, you know, should not have arms. Raising the age to purchase long guns to 21, uh, I think would help. The statistics show that, I heard another figure today, six of the nine largest mass shootings were done by young men under 21 years of age. So, uh, you know, raising the age to get a gun to the age of alcohol and tobacco in a lot of states, um, you know, that, that seems to make sense to me. But arming teachers is not going to is not going to stop the shooters uh, effectively. It's not going to deter them, certainly. Um, it may get the teachers targeted. If somebody wants to go in and shoot a school they, and they think the teachers are armed, they're going to kill them first. So um, I think it's a terrible idea.
Frankie Lee, how can we start to get money out of politics? Nothing gets done with everybody brought off. Yeah, how can we start? I think given the situation federally with Congress gridlocked, we got to start at the uh, state and local level. And what we ought to do, start for is not these matching funds programs that uh, like New York City has, now New York State will have in 2024, what's proposed by Democrats at the federal level. When you have matching funds, it actually increases the disparity between uh, people with lesser and greater amounts of funding that matches. And when it's a six to one match, it's a seven fold increase. When it's a two to one match, it, uh, it doubles the difference between the uh, two candidates. What we ought to do is what they call the clean money, clean elections model, where everybody who qualifies to be on a ballot is qualified to receive an election campaign grant, an equal grant for everybody. And then they can spend it as they see fit. The grant should be sufficient to reach the voters. Uh, it should also include access and mandatory participation in publicly sponsored debates and access to public media. Um, and in the federal case, if we get to that level, uh, all broadcast media that's licensed by the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, that way, you know, you get everybody on a level playing field. And so we should go what we call, it's called full public campaign financing. Partial campaign financing is this matching fund system. And, you know, we can do that at the local level. Uh, you know, big city like New York has done it. But I've, you know, costed it out for New, uh, Syracuse, New York, where I am. I did this a long time ago, but it was, it wasn't that costly um, to fund these campaigns. Um, and local campaigns, of course, cost less. There's not as much broadcast media to buy or any because it's hard when you're running for a district council seat. It's hard to target your district through, you know, TV and radio. So it's, it's really not done. Um, so it's not that expensive. And this is a case where we build it from the bottom up. Uh, because right now, there's not a hell of a lot we can do in Congress. And, you know, if the if the predictions are true, we're going to have, you know, Republican-dominated Congress the next two years. And, you know, anything along these lines is just not going to be in the cards. So I think we start at the local and state level and push for full public campaign financing. Boss Monk. The biggest question of all is, why hasn't the Green Party been able to break through? We're at the point in, of our society that Debs was at. Why or how can we make a new part like Abe, new party like Abe was able to enter? Well, you mentioned Eugene Debs, and I don't know if you can see with the question up there. I'm wearing my Eugene Debs Hall t-shirt. I spoke there a couple weeks ago. Let's see. Yeah, there you go. And uh, this is in Buffalo. They have a nice little hall in, uh, in the city, inner city. And uh, so, you know, I spoke there about our campaign and our petition drive and, you know, the issues facing us. Um, so why haven't we been able to break through uh, to the point where Debs was at? Well, there's a difference on the left. Back then, going through the Farmer labor populist parties, the Greenback Labor Party, the People's Party, 
through to the Socialist Party, people on the left understood, and this is like Socialist Politics 101, that we have to have class independence from the capitalists. That means independence from their parties, the Democrats and Republicans. That was just like an axiom. And since the mid-30s, when the communists said, we're going to support Roosevelt and in other countries support the so-called liberal capitalists against the fascists, uh, that has been the position of most of the left today. You know, the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist group, if you want to call it that, in the United States, is oriented toward the Democratic Party. And as I, you know, said in another context when I was running for president, they get lost in the sauce because they end up supporting liberal Democrats, not socialists. And so the socialist message and the idea that it's an alternative to what we have, you know, a fundamental alternative, gets lost. Um, so that's one reason, you know, the broad left, the progressives from liberal, the revolutionaries um, are oriented to the Democratic Party, most of them. And that was not what was true in Deb's time. So the socialists, you know, they were able to elect thousands of people in the first 20 years of the 20th century and hundreds, you know, through to the mid thirties. Um, a lot of them were local, some state legislatures, a number of members of Congress. Um, and aside them, beside them were other independent left parties like the Progressive Party in, in uh, Wisconsin, the Farmer Labor Party in Minnesota, local union-based labor parties. And between them, you know, by 1934, 35, as they were going into the 1936 election, and there was a movement for a national labor party within the new union movement, um, there was two governors, four senators, Minnesota and Wisconsin, and 13 members of Congress from those two states, along with hundreds of independent left candidates elected to municipal office and a few state offices around the country. <coughs> and 1936 was the, was the turning point. And, you know, so we've got to get, you know, tell the left, you know, the left is not the same as the, you know, liberal reformers of capitalism. And, you know, we got to get out and build this independent party. So why or how can we make a new party like Abe Lincoln was able to enter? Uh, you know, what they did, again, was build from the bottom up, uh, starting with the Liberty Party against slavery, 1840, 1844. And it became a broader coalition, uh, for the most part, Liberty Party was still around separate, but a lot of its people went into the Free Soil Party, and then finally the Republican Party. And then the Republican Party started electing people to local, state, and federal office. So by the time Lincoln ran in 1860, the Republican Party was the largest caucus in the Congress. So but when he won, he wasn't really a third-party candidate. He was really a first-party candidate. But they built that from the bottom up over you know, a pretty rapid period, basically 20 years from the time the Liberty Party first came out to be the party against slavery. Um, and then it accelerated in the 1850s. But that's what we got to do. I mean, the idea that we can get some big personality and have them run for president, it's going to change everything. That person will be isolated if we haven't built from the bottom up, built a base, built a, you know, elected officials that would support uh, a president who really wanted to change things. So that's how we do it. Uh, we got to, you know, declare our independence from the capitalist parties and then build the alternative from the bottom up. I think that's, 
really what's got to be done. The other thing, and this is you know something I've emphasized since the presidential campaign, because it became so obvious in the course of that campaign, with the Republicans becoming an extremist party, exemplified by Trump, most people on the progressive side of the political spectrum just felt they couldn't afford not to vote for Biden, even though they weren't enthusiastic about him at the least. Some of them really didn't like him at all, but they still voted to get rid of Trump. But with that extremist party out there, and, and what we have is a winner-take-all system. So it's single-member district winner-take-all for legislatures and just winner-take-all for the single-seat executive offices. That creates a situation where the vote-splitting spoiler problem becomes a problem. And it's getting worse because the Republicans have become not just a conservative party, but an extremist party. So I think the other thing we need to do to have a multi-party democracy, uh, to have a political system where the Green Party uh, can take its rightful place like it has in many countries, is to change the electoral system. So that means ranked choice voting for those single seat executive offices and proportional ranked choice voting for multi-member districts for legislative bodies. And so I think, you know, we got to build from the bottom up. Uh, we got to declare our independence, but we also got to change the electoral system. And the latter is something we've been doing. I mean, ranked choice voting has, has really increased in a lot of jurisdictions in the last few years. Um, we went into 2020 with something like 24 jurisdictions with uh, ranked choice voting, and now it's it's approaching 60. A lot of that since that election. We won some in that election, some, you know, referendum to change uh, voting in, in some municipalities, and we've been winning more since. Uh, I think people are hungry for that, and uh, we got some big cases of ranked choice voting, even if they're flawed, like Alaska and New York City and Maine, as well as many cities. So I think we can build upon that. And the key thing is we got to not settle for single-member district ranked choice voting, but we want multi-member proportional ranked choice voting for legislative bodies. That's what will change the system so we become a multi-party democracy in which the Greens have their rightful place. <clears throat> Scout Trooper 164, lastly, Holly, what do you think of Johnny Depp winning his trial of his ex-wife defaming him as an abuser? I haven't thought much about it. I didn't follow the evidence. I've heard some of the comments that, you know, um, you know, the Me Too movement, uh, you know, took a hit because of this. Um, but, you know, I really haven't thought much about it because I, I didn't follow it. And I don't know what I mean, I heard it was kind of a he said, she said kind of trial. Um, it's about all I can tell you. I really haven't thought much about it. But, um, you know, um, you know, in the cases of women being abused, I hope this doesn't discourage women from coming forward. Let me just say that. Tired Allison, what are your thoughts about how Social Security can be improved? Well, first of all, you need to raise the ceiling on earnings that pay Social Security taxes. I think now it's about 137000 a year. Any money you make above that, you don't pay the Social Security tax. Below that, it's a flat tax. So overall, the Social Security tax is regressive. So you need to get rid of the cap and tax people for Social Security right up through to any income. 
Um, that in itself will make the Social Security system solvent. There was some headlines, a report just came out from the trust fund, and they say Social Security has 13 years left before it will have to cut benefits. Um, that's easily remedied by lifting the cap. In fact, uh, we should uh, increase benefits so that nobody who's uh, retired and living on Social Security is living in poverty. And, uh, you know, we presented evidence and funding sources to double Social Security benefits in our presidential campaign. That's on our website um, from the presidential campaign, HowieHawkins.us. So uh, don't be scared about, you know, the Social Security going bankrupt uh, talk. Um, there, it's easily remedied. Um, if it goes bankrupt, it will be a deliberate decision by uh, Congress and the president. And, uh, you know, of course, we'd have to fight that if it, if it really comes to that. But uh, it shouldn't. There's no reason. And Social Security is the most popular social program in the country. So if they do want to try to do that, we should be able to mobilize the people to fight and defeat that change. Violet at Content Boutique. How many signatures did we wind up with for your campaign? Looks like Matthew turned in his two. You know, I don't have an actual count for my campaign because I was out getting signatures and other people assembled the petition. Uh, but it got submitted. I was there when we submitted it. There's a picture of me holding up one of the volumes together with uh, Gloria Matera, my lieutenant governor uh, running mate. Um, but apparently we got enough because nobody's objected as far as we know. And like I said at the top, uh, you know, somebody could have mailed their objection yesterday, as long as it's postmarked yesterday. So we'll know Monday and the state board will kind of wait till Tuesday or maybe even Wednesday before making it official. But I'm cautiously optimistic. And, you know, Matthew Ho, uh, they got their signatures certified in that state uh, county what do they call them? Clerks, I guess, certify valid signatures and then send them on to the state. And uh, it looks like they got enough. And I think the only thing that remains to be done there is an official statement from the state. Uh, I don't know what it is there, Board of Elections or Secretary of State, that Matthew's on the ballot. It's not just Matthew. It's the whole North Carolina Green Party. They had a party petition going on. So now that they have a party line, they can nominate Matthew Ho for U.S. Senate and some other uh, Greens that want to run for other offices. So that, you know, that's a big victory. And, uh, you know, one of the ways they make it hard for us, North Carolina has always been a hard state. They've won reforms that have made it not so hard, but it was still pretty difficult and they got it done. So, you know, congratulations to the Greens. Let's give ourselves a uh, pat on the back and then get out there and, and campaign hard. And, and Tired Allison is saying in the chat that, yes, Matthew Hall is official. Okay, you're up more than I am on that news. That's good to hear. So congratulations to North Carolina Greens and Matthew Aho. Howie, why don't you run for president from Mary Cone? Well, I did in 2020. And what I've said about 2024 is I'm not even going to think about it until we get through the midterms which now turn out for me to be a race for a New York governor. So uh, we'll go through that and then see what it looks like, um, you know, next November, December, and see uh, what to do. Um, so that's, 
That's all I can say. I haven't said yes. I haven't said no. I'm going to say that later. Violet at Content Boutique. Nina Turner is thinking about running Independent Green. Would you want to bring her in for an interview? I love Nina so. Yeah, I, I like Nina. She's She's got good spirit. Um, I had not heard she's thinking about that. Um, and if you could point me to a source for that, um, I would definitely, you know, love to have her on this podcast. Um, so, but I, you know, I, is that a rumor or is that something she said publicly? I would like to know. Scout Trooper 164, what do you think of Biden giving armed drones to Ukraine to attack Russia? Well, I wouldn't say they're to attack Russia. They're to defend Ukraine from the Russian attack on Ukraine. So I think, you know, they have the right to defend themselves and uh, getting arms from wherever they can get them to defend themselves. So, you know, my concern is Biden has not been clear about what we're doing there. He had an op-ed in the New York Times this week saying our purpose is to help Ukraine to defend itself not to attack Russia, not to get rid of Putin, not to have regime change in Russia, which is what he said at the beginning. But in between, as this guy often does, he said, you know, Putin's got to go. It's not his exact quote. Uh, his defense secretary said our goal is to weaken Russia. You got loose cannons like Seth Moulton, Democratic member of Congress from Massachusetts, saying we're at war with Russia. Leon Panetta saying this is a proxy war. If that's what they're doing, we don't want that. You know, it's one thing to support the Ukrainians' self-determination and territorial integrity and sovereignty. It's another thing to use them in a proxy war with Russia. So I think that's something we've got to, you know, make clear in our demands on the Biden administration, among which should be uh, use your influence in the International Monetary Fund to cancel the foreign debt that Ukraine owes. They're, they're servicing debts that their oligarchs undertook because they wouldn't tax themselves to fund the Ukrainian government, you know, before this whole war broke out in the middle of a war, they don't have the money, you know, to fund basic services. Now the uh, $40 billion aid package that passed last week, I, I went over this last week, you know, half of that is humanitarian and non-military aid, uh, you know, for things like uh, dealing with the world food crisis, 5 billion is for that. Um, and to help uh, Ukraine, you know, fund its public services uh, and then to help the refugees. So uh, we should definitely provide in that aid. And of the other 20 billion, as I recall, only 6 billion was for new weapons. 9 billion is to restore the weapons we already gave them or plan to give them. So that money is going directly to the Pentagon just to restore our, our uh, arsenal, um, which, you know, is questionable. I, you know, the only question I have about that aid is, why couldn't you take it out of the existing Pentagon budget, which is bloated and full of waste, fraud, and abuse, and not about defending the country, but about being the world's military superpower and being stationed on over 800 military bases around the world and trying to dictate to other countries, you know, what they should do and who their government should be. You know, all that we got to resist. Um, but, you know, armed drones to Ukraine, um, you know, this has been going on for a while. Those those small armed drones, I forget what they're called. Um, I think those reached Ukraine weeks ago. So, um, but it's not to attack Russia. It's to defend themselves against Russia's attack. 
Violet, Air Gray. Uh, any recommendations for books to build reading lists for school clubs, such as a Black Student Alliance or a LGBTQ club? Um, well, if you're looking at you know Black history, um, there are two books by Robert Allen that um, you know I can just were important for me in developing my thinking. One is called Black Awakening in Capitalist America. Came out in the late 60s. And, you know, it covers the movements of the 60s, civil rights and black liberation movements, and also how the establishment was responding. And in particular, how the Rockefeller Foundation, or no, I'm sorry, the Ford Foundation, was starting to fund so-called black militant, black power groups, which are really black capitalist groups, to try to steer the movement. And it was a prototype to what we have now with the nonprofit industrial complex, where these nonprofiteers basically are leading the social movements now with funding from capitalists, setting the agenda. We don't, they're not democratic, uh, you know, priorities and actions are not set by a grassroots rank and file, but by a staff that's hired by these capitalists in the end. Um, so it had an early uh, analysis of that phenomenon within the black movement. Uh, he came out, you know, maybe a decade later, or I forget when it first came out. It's called Reluctant Reformers. And it's an, an analysis of all the social reform movements in the history of this country, starting with the abolitionists, you know, through the feminists, the socialists, the communists, the progressive movement. Um, and what it shows is that in every one of those movements, too often in, in the whole uh, pretty much, except for the Wobblies and the Knights of Labor, pretty much, uh, white leadership in those movements said we have to tone down the attack on racism in order to keep the white people in this movement. And they lost the black people because the black people had to deal with racism every day. So it's it's a, a important historical lessons on why, you know, we can't have class unity if we don't get rid of racism within our ranks. Um, so that's called Reluctant Reformers by Robert Allen. Um, so those are two books, uh, reading lists for school clubs. Um, I think, you know, those books can be read by high school students. Um, they're, they're, they're not hard to read. They're not real academic. They're, they're well-written. Um, as far as LBGDQ uh, books, I'm really not that familiar uh, with any books I could recommend. Um, but I know they're out there. Um, I just don't have a recommendation on the top of my head for you. Um, so, yeah, those are the books I would recommend, uh, particularly for a Black Student Alliance, those two books by Robert Allen. Um, and there are a lot of Black history books. I, I read one in high school uh, before the Mayflower. Uh, what was who's the author? Uh, Laroni Bennett? No. I got that right? Yeah, Larone, Larone Bennett. We used to call him Larone. We were in high school. Um, and that was, you know, just very eye-opening for me. Uh, before the Mayflower, you know, you know, Black people got here before the Mayflower. And just in itself, that's, you know, an insight. That, and the book is full of them. Um, and probably more recent histories have updated the analysis then, because that was probably written in the 60s. An autobiography of Malcolm X. Uh, I think that's, you know, an inspiring story. It certainly was for me. I also read that in high school. In fact, when I was in high school, it, it was it was 
the last year they called it this, but they called it Negro history uh, rather than black history. When I, when I took that class as a, I guess as a freshman in high school. Um, so yeah, the autobiography of Malcolm X, uh, particularly for young people, high school, um, that's something that I think a lot of them will take to. And it, it reads so well, that it's like a novel you can't put down. Are we out of questions and comments? We still got a few minutes. Yeah, I'm looking through the chat to see if anything we missed needs to be addressed. AJ Jones says, don't be so quick to dismiss celebrity trials. They still have real life, I guess, backlash. Um, yeah, I would I would not uh, dismiss them and their impact. Yeah, there we go. Um, it's just, I didn't follow that one. Um, I, I'm, I hardly know who these people are. I, I've never heard of the woman actually in the Johnny Depp. I just heard the name. So you know, sometimes when you're following the news, you follow what you're familiar with and not what is uh, unfamiliar with. So, um, but yeah, those celebrity trials do have impact. You know, O.J. Simpson had an impact. Uh, Bill Cosby had an impact. Um, still having an impact. Uh, the Bill Cosby case, so, or cases. So yeah, I would not dismiss them uh, and their impact. Uh, it's just one that I didn't have much to say because I didn't follow it. Howie, what's your favorite TV show? I love The Boys. Man, I came up really before there was much TV. So I never got the TV habit. I, I just, and I'm kind of a hyperactive kind of person. I have a real hard time just sitting down and watching a TV show. And when a commercial comes up, forget about it. I mean, I got to get out of there. Now, I do have a DVR, um, but mostly I, I, I uh, save um, the news, you know, some news programs or documentaries, occasionally C-SPAN, book TV, um, you know, ball games like I'm watching the Warriors, my team, I'm born in San Francisco, um, you know, in the NBA Finals. And yeah, I can pay attention to sports. That's true. Um, and track and field, you know, there's, you know, the, the, uh, what do they call it? The diamond league has started. Uh, there'll be a world uh, championship coming up in July. So I've got all that, you know, I got on my DVR, anything track and field, it records. So my plan tonight is, uh, I'm going to eat dinner and watch the track meet. Um, so that's that's what I watch. I so my favorite shows are sports and uh, news. I, I I there's not a TV show. Damn, I don't know if I've ever really followed one my whole life. Um, and I'm not saying that's good. It's just uh, just what my interests have been. I mean, it's hard to get me into a movie theater to sit down for 
an hour and a half, two hours, and watch a movie. I just, I, I much prefer interactive things, reading a book or, you know, being online where I can move at my own pace, which is usually pretty quick. You know, I, I just don't like loitering around, waiting for the thing to develop. And, uh, you know, I, I will comment that on TV shows, I mean, sometimes I watch Rachel Maddow, but it's hard. You know, I guess she's only, only on once a week, but that first segment where she she takes 20 minutes to get to the point, it drives me crazy. And sometimes, you know, she's sort of, you know, putting these uh, things out to sort of, you want to know what the point is, but it takes her so long to get to it, you know, and that that's an example, I guess, of just me. I, I, I don't have patience for people that won't get to the point. So, sorry, I can't tell you what my TV favorite shows are except sports and news. Eric Ray, if you were a high school teacher, what subjects would you teach and why? Wow. Um, I would think I'd like to teach history um, and math. I loved math in high school. I mean, I was the kind of student that couldn't wait for the slow pace. So I'd just be in the back going through the textbook, you know, and after, you know, a month or so, I'd, I'd worked out all the problems in the textbook. And, uh, you know, and then I was able to do well. Um, so I, I enjoy math, but just like puzzles and it's so logical. Um, but in terms of most interesting to me, you know, it'd be history and social science, I think. So that's that's what I do. I you know, much as I like math, I don't I don't spend time you know doing math puzzles. I've I've forgotten more than I used to know. I think probably in math. Yeah, Violet says watching Rachel Maddow is torture. Yeah, I particularly that first section. Boy, it's not just you. Laugh online says or laugh out loud says tired Allison. Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad she's only on once a week, even though I haven't watched it when she's on. Violet at Content Boutique. Dead and Company are starting tour next weekend. Are you going to their East Coast show? Is that the Grateful Dead? Or is that is it Dead and Company something different? See, I don't even know that. I mean, when it comes to music, I'm like, you know, old school R and B, you know. Uh, the old soul music from the 50s and 60s. Uh, that's really, yeah, The Grateful Dead. Yeah, um, I couldn't, if I heard them, I'd know it was probably them. Uh, I think they're okay. Not my first cup of tea, but uh, I, I'm not going to their concert. I didn't even know they have one on the East Coast. But I'm sure there's some people definitely going because I know they're, they have hardcore fans. Anyway, we can never get gun buybacks to going again to reduce guns, says Frankie Lee. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there are a lot of programs going on. We got one in my own city. Um, I think the question is, uh, can we get a gun buyback going for these assault rifles? Um, I was hearing something the other day about, um, about uh, you know, a lot of owners of, you know, AR-15s and other assault weapons 
you know, are willing to uh, sell them back. They just want to get their investment back. I think that would take some of the uh, guns off the street. Um, of course, the people willing to sell them back are probably the people that are we need to least worry about doing something crazy with those assault weapons. Um, but, yeah, I think we can get that going at every level, um, local, state, and federal. And it's it's a good program to promote. Um, we have so many guns on the street have nothing to do with self-defense. Well, now we're just about up to an hour and I don't see any more questions. So um, I'll just go back to what I said at the beginning. Um, we just have a great example in New York of why electing Democrats isn't going to get the climate legislation, the health care, you know, universal public health care legislation we want, the criminal justice reforms. Because New York is about as liberal a state and has about as liberal a delegation in the state senate and state assembly as you can find in the country. And they still won't pass these progressive bills, uh, which is an argument for why we need to build the Green Party. And, uh, you know, what we need in the Green Party really is we need to organize our locals. So we have organizations upon which to base credible campaigns for local office and state office, and soon, hopefully, the House of Representatives. and um, even we don't we don't have to win the office to move legislation. I've used this example many times. I got five percent of the vote running against Governor Cuomo in New York in 2014, and that was the year he wanted to run up the vote, get more than his father Mario Cuomo ever got, get more than he got when he was first elected in 2010. He wanted to get ready to run for president with 2016 coming up, and he got less votes, and he saw five percent of the electorate was with the Greens. And to compete for our vote, he had to adopt some of the things we were demanding that he had never supported before. And that included a ban on fracking, a $15 minimum wage, and paid family leave in New York State. So we can move the agenda and our agenda uh, without taking the office, but by getting enough votes to force them to compete. Um, and we can you know, set the agenda in a lot of cases, particularly the further down the ballot you go, Greens set the agenda because we have real issues. You know, a lot of these local races are, you know, I, we all went to high school together, like me. Um, whereas the Greens come in and say, we need to do A, B, and C to improve our community. And then the other candidates got to respond. We set the agenda. And we can do that at the state and, and uh, particularly the House level, uh, where, you know, those districts are large, but they're not so large that we can't run competitive races. So I think that's what we got to be aiming for, along with you know, initiatives or getting legislators to introduce legislation for ranked choice voting, including particularly proportional ranked choice voting for multi-member districts for legislative bodies. Um, I think that's the way forward. And, you know, our time has got to come. You know, we're the party that's dealing with the climate crisis. The climate crisis keeps getting worse. We're the only party saying, you know, cut the military budget and put those resources into the environment and social protections. We're the only party that, you know, is clearly consistently and really for uh, a single payer Medicare for all type system. 
Uh, you can go down the list. And the people are with us. We know from the polling. So I know it's a discouraging time in a lot of respects. The Republicans, you know, more evidence is coming out all the time about how they really did try to pull off a coup uh, after the last uh, you know, presidential election. Uh, and they're not backing away from it, really. Um, and so we have an extreme right in this country and a neoliberal corporate center represented by the Democrats which is a disaster for working people in the environment. So, you know, these issues uh, speak to the need for a Green Party. And we know from public opinion polling that people support us on our policies. So, you know, we're like, the objective situation is perfect for us. Now we got to, you know, build our organization and build our campaigns to the point where people say, yeah, the Greens, uh, they're a realistic option. We're going to go with them. So I hope... Uh, that will, you know, give people some hope and, and some encouragement and, uh, you know, to be active this week and we'll talk next week. And, you know, let's let's keep pushing all summer. So have a good week and I'll talk to you next week.